Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. There are a couple of wonderful blurbs for John Brem's new book, The Dharma of Poetry, How Poems Can Deepen Your Spiritual Practice and Open You to Joy. David Hinton said, There is a beautiful alchemy in the way Brem turns poems into practice. He shows us the ways poems are, by their nature, moments of liberating attentiveness. And in his clear and welcoming voice, Brem reveals that liberation can infuse our everyday lives. John Brem is the author of three books of poetry and has had poems published widely in anthologies and journals, including Poetry, The Sun, and The Writer's Almanac. He lives in Portland, Oregon, teaches poetry classes in Portland and Denver, and his website is johnbrempoet.com. First of all, thanks for welcoming me into your beautiful home. Nice to be here. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to join you. I think so folks can get a sense of your wit and your character. Maybe reading a couple of poems would be a good idea. On Turning Four is one that I almost have memorized, and uh, people seem to enjoy that, and also non-harming. You bet. It's actually On Turning 64. You said On Turning Four which would be quite a different poem. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't remember that exactly, but... Uh, did I say four? You did say four. <laughs> I'm going to write that poem. You know I'm, what? That, I'm going to take that challenge. That's going to be a longer poem. I think. That's going to be a longer poem. <laughs> I have to make some of it up, but... Okay, on turning 64. The slowing down is speeding up. <laughs> The discussion before the poem was longer than the poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, six words. That's my shortest poem so far. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Uh, you know, I had, it's funny. I had played around with that idea for a while. This idea that as we, as we get older, time speeds up, but the body slows down. And I had, you know, I had sort of elaborated the the basic idea of it and. Um, and then it just came to me, no, it doesn't need all that. Just there's a sort of perfect balance of, of um, you know, slowing down and speeding up. Yeah. And interestingly, my wife, you know, I've always thought of this as primarily, you know, a poem about the sort of degradation of, of getting older. And my wife pointed out, you know, if you see slowing down as a positive quality, you know, slowing down the mind slowing down our habitual reactions and so forth. You can read it in a positive sense of, you know, the, the slowing down, the deepening is speeding up, that that's getting stronger. And I, it wasn't my intention when I wrote the poem, but I like that it, it can accommodate that meaning as well. Could you read that again? Yeah. On turning 64, the slowing down is speeding up. So I'm reminded of the Olympics in Atlanta, where they interviewed a 90-year-old at the time Olympian. Mm. And they said, 90 years old? What's it like, what's it like being a, a former Olympian at 90? He said, well, I can do everything I was able to do at age 60, just slower. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's brilliant. I remember that. Yeah. You know, the other inspiration for this poem, um, my teacher at Cornell, Archie Ammons, A.R. Ammons, has a wonderful book called The Really Short Poems of A.R. Ammons. And one in particular, he has a poem um, called Their Sex Life. 
one failure on top of another. <laughs> you know, just two lines. Yeah. One yeah, failure yeah. on top of another. So that I was strongly influenced by him as a teacher and but as a poet as well. And so that that kind of wit um, definitely uh, something that I cultivated in my shorter poems. You've had exposure to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Non-harming. Yes, okay, a longer poem. <clears throat> Non-harming. I wonder what the neighbors think when they see me outside with the BB gun shooting at the pigeons on our roof. I gave them a copy of my anthology, The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy, and the introduction makes me sound like a person who probably wouldn't be shooting at pigeons, even if only with a BB gun, which doesn't really hurt them, I tell myself but simply encourages them to find someplace else to deposit their smeary droppings that threaten to turn one side of our house into a bad Jackson Pollock painting. Honey, come look at this. Isn't that the mindfulness guy out there with a gun shooting at his own house? I'm well aware of the irony, but life's like that, isn't it? A contradiction wrapped in an absurdity, etc. Still, plunking pigeons with a BB gun might not fall afoul of the injunction to not cause harm. I thought about shooting myself in the foot just to see how much it hurt, but decided against it. I tried placing scary-looking plastic owls strategically around the roof, but the pigeons laughed at that. I tried an electronic device that sent out a kind of sub-audible to humans, shrieking, imitative of a bird of prey, but they didn't fall for that either. I always thought pigeons were dumb, but now I'm not so sure. They've outsmarted me so far, not that that's any great accomplishment, moving from one side of the roof to the other, where the angle for firing is not so good, and where the homeowner is exposed, even in this early morning half-light, to the watchful eyes of the neighbors. Fantastic. I think about that, and as you're beginning to, you know, it's a poem, okay, it's a poem, it's a good poem, there's, you know, self-effacing humor, and, 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 and feels very zen to me, this, this uh, understanding that what we strive to be, and, and, and what we're taught in Dharma talks to be, we're trying to get to, but we're not quite there. And then when I come in your house, I'm thinking, I might be that brown house right over there. Yeah. <laughs> the, <neighbor. laughs> the houses are very close. I was actually thinking of the neighbors across the street. They're the ones. Well, I gave them my anthology, too. I pass it around, so, yeah. You haven't found it in one of those little libraries yet, have you? <laughs> that will be the day. Oh, man. That hadn't even occurred to me, but, yeah, that could happen. I've, I've thought about seeding the ones in my neighborhood with uh, with mine. Um, I haven't done that yet. And, and, and especially when I saw some... Um, socialist propaganda in a little library the other day. I thought maybe I better not be that guy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what was the first flash of inspiration for the new book, The Dharma of Poetry? The first flash of inspiration. Well, you know, I did the anthology, The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy, and um, I taught from this book for quite some time, the, in the poems in the book, before it became a book and then after it was published. And um, yeah, as I taught the poems and worked with them and um, explored them with students, I kept finding more and more that I wanted to say about the poems um, and a way of reading poetry that I wanted to 
uh, advocate. And so, um, yeah, I just felt like I would try these essays. And I had never really written essays before, except, you know, in college. Um, so it was an interesting challenge to write prose instead of poetry. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I love these poems so much. And I, I, uh, I wanted to share my enthusiasm for them. And I wanted to uh, talk about how you might integrate poetry into spiritual practice. I mean, it's kind of implied in the anthology that the poems can be a part of one's spiritual practice, but it's not, there's no, you know, kind of instruction around that. And so I wanted to, you know, help people who were inclined to see how they might um, integrate the poetry into a, into a spiritual practice, a Buddhist practice or other practices. Yeah. How do you define the term Dharma? For, no. for non-Buddhists. For non-Buddhists. Well, you know, it has a number of different meanings. Um, I think the main meanings, Dharma refers to the Buddhist teachings. Um, Buddhist teaching more generally. Um, but the way that I think of it in terms of these books is Dharma is a way of, of uh, describing... Uh, the natural law, or things as they are, the way things are, um, the truth of things, the fundamental reality that we are encountering. Um, so in that sense, the poems, I think, uh, speak to that basic human predicament. And so many of the poems in the anthology and the poems I write about in the, in the Dharma poetry are not by Buddhist poets but they reflect that engagement with the truth of things. Um, so, yeah. Close enough to Buddhism. Yeah, close enough, yeah. I saw a bumper sticker in California one time, I think it was the Bay Area, that said, uh, less drama, more dharma. Ah, nice, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. You quote Isa in the introduction, and uh, the work of those old Buddhist poets ages well, doesn't it? It sure does, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that poem, Harming a Cricket or Doing a Cricket No Harm? Sure. You say is a spiritual question. You say that in the book. Yeah, sure. I'll just read the, read the little haiku by Isa. I'm going to roll over, so please move, Cricket. <laughs> and Isa is kind of famous for poems about s small experiences and poems about insects. And... Um, He's an incredibly friendly poet. You know, you get the, just get this, a, a sense of warmth and generosity and tenderness and care. And I just love that he speaks to the cricket. It's a poem addressed to the cricket. It's not about the cricket. He's actually making a request. You know, I'm going to roll over, so please move, cricket. I mean, it's, it suggests to me a, a quality of humility, of friendliness, of um, the, the absolute lack of human arrogance that has wrought such incredible destruction in our world. I mean, he's embodying, exemplifying a way of being in the world that we would all do well to, to follow. I mean, that kind of respect, even for an insect that happens to be sharing his space. Um, so that and the kind of childlike innocence of, 
of the poem, I feel, it just feels really refreshing. It feels like, yeah, I want to be that guy. I want to be that kind of person. Who treats a cricket like an equal. Yeah, who treats a cricket like an equal. Right. Not the guy who says, I believe in animism, but a guy who can boil it down to those few syllables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You say poems have the power to fundamentally alter both our behavior and our awareness, but almost every contemporary poem we see seems to settle for much less than that. Um, <laughs> you think that's the case? And if, if so, um, why do you think that is? That contemporary poems don't they, fulfill that yeah, aspiration. Yeah, they, they, they don't. They're not interested in doing that. They're interested in being clever, yeah. ironic, yeah. Um, in, in, um, in virtue signaling or any number of things. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, I have to confess that I, I, I'm not an expert on contemporary poetry. I mean, it's so hard to have any kind of grasp of there's so much going on you know it's hard to generalize but I think you know it's not seen as a spiritual uh, practice or a spiritual art and so I think the fact that poetry has become so professionalized you know that the, all these MFA programs and I did one way back in the day uh, if I had to do over again I mean if I were a young poet now I would not go into an MFA program, and I wouldn't advise anyone to do that. Because? Well, because I think it, it, I, it's just a strange culture, academia. And I, and I think that I, I, I don't know. It feels like the point of writing poetry is to advance your career. Um, now, in, with the current situation. Yeah, with the current situation. And, I, you know, that's a gross oversimplification, and I'm sure that doesn't do justice to many poets who are you know, really passionate about what they do and have deeper aspirations for for their work. Um, but the the academic culture as a whole, I think, I find rather shallow. And you, you said clever. Um, maybe a desire to impress their peers. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really... It, it, it feels hollow to me. I've gotten to the point where if I feel like there isn't some spiritual depth to a poem, I, I don't really engage with it. And it doesn't have to be obvious. It doesn't have to be explicit. But if I don't feel the poem is coming from that source, then it's, it's hard for me to, to, um, to really sink deeply in. So, yeah, why that is, I'm not sure. But I think, I think it has to do with the institutionalization of creative writing. I mean, 50, 60, 70 years ago, up until that point, I mean, no one took a poetry workshop. No one took a creative writing workshop. I mean, you just learned by doing it, and you did it because you had to do it. You didn't do it because there was a flashy brochure about an MFA program that looked very seductive, you know. So things have changed. Should I? There was a, oh, the cat's no problem. Okay. No, I mean, he wants to be, he yeah. wants to be famous too. <laughs> He wants to advance his career, I think. And it's working. It's working. So far. <laughs> um, I, I, I was going to lead into about that last question, that it's really a reflection of our culture. Yeah. And, uh, and you get into that in the book, and we'll probably cover that. So I'll move on to um, a question about uh, Stefan Mellermé. He said that poetry is the language for a state of crisis, and it would seem that this is poetry's historical moment. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does feel that um, you know people turn to poetry in times of crisis, and like I say in the introduction, that we 
we may have entered an era of permanent crisis insofar as anything can be permanent. But yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, this anthology that, that I put together has sold almost 30,000 copies, which is incredible to me. Um, but people are hungry for, uh, for sense-making, for meaning, for depth. And I think that's another aspect of our culture, the acceleration that's engendered by social media, by these quick bursts and the fragmentation of our attention um, leads to a kind of shallowness, uh, quickness. And poetry is the opposite of that. Poetry demands a slowing down and it's a portal to a kind of depth that I think we're losing, you know, we're losing access to that uh, as we get more addicted to our devices and to social media and that, that speed and um, agitation. So I think poetry is a kind of beautiful counterbalance to the, some of those more destructive trends in our culture. And yeah, pe people are hungry for it. And yeah. Is it a waste of time to try and figure out what a poem means? Ah, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a waste of time. I think that it becomes problematic where that becomes the most important thing, where like that's really in the foreground, where all your energy is going towards what is the poet saying, you know, as if the poem were just a little machine for del delivering meaning. Um, yeah, that way of engaging with poem, I think, misses so much of the of the depth and the, just the total experience of a poem and the pleasure of a poem. We kind of skip the pleasure and go right to the work of interpretation. So, yeah, I feel really strongly that experiencing a poem, um, relaxing into it, imaginatively entering the space that the poem creates, all those things are so much richer than trying to reduce it to a paraphrasable meaning. Um, and of course, it's a meaningful experience, but that, that's different than saying, what does it mean? That kind of reductive way of reading is, I think, does, I think it's harmful. And in Buddhist terms, I think it's a form of grasping. And grasping after meaning, grasping after control, wanting to fix something that's inherently fluid. That is the same kind, or it's a different uh, aspect of the craving that the Buddha identified as the source of human suffering. Irritable reaching. Yeah, irritable reaching after fact and reason, as Keats said. Yeah, yeah, many people have pointed to it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so I think, yeah, if that's in the background, the, the meaning, the looking for meaning, the feeling into meaning, that's fine. But once it sort of takes over the show, that's when things get problematic, I think. It's going to end up irritable. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking of a prompt uh -huh. um, based on that. How to, I think it was how to enter the poem. Um, I forget. Uh, well, I, I, can't I can't find the exact prompt, but there was one prompt specifically where it was about attempting to enter the poem. And so you've not only thought about that, but you found a way to guide people into, um, into that moment. I mean, there's a, there's a meditation on entering the poem. I wonder if that's what you're thinking about. Um, 
there's a prompt. Yeah, is it, was it this? There it is, right there. Yeah. Meditation, entering the poem. What page is that on? 87. Okay. That's what it was. Okay. So your workshops help you develop these kinds of things. How does how does that ha how is the inspiration to create a workshop meditation or workshop prompt similar to writing a poem? How could you ask that again? How is the yeah you you, you teach yeah. in Denver and here in Portland yeah and um, you know you want to give students new things and so you think of prompts you yeah. think of this medit meditation entering the poem. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering how you come to creating yeah. such a meditation or yeah. such a prompt. And how is it similar or dissimilar to sitting down and writing a poem? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so these meditations and prompts I created specifically for this book. Um, and um, I haven't actually used this with students live. Um, and that's partly because I haven't been teaching live since the book came out. Um, but in terms of creating it, yeah, I think that that process of feeling into, you know, how can you, you know, create the conditions in a, in a meditative practice that would allow a student to enter a poem and not hold it at arm's length analyzing it, but to actually move into it in a kind of intimate relationship with the consciousness that's presented in the poem that's still alive in the poem um, you know working that out felt to me very much like writing a poem because you're making connections you're seeing relationships that you didn't quite see before and and you're trying to figure out how to say that in the best possible way so yeah it all feels of a piece yeah. of a cosmology yeah 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 it all flows together yeah you quote Jack Cornfield. Uh, enlightening the mind's thoughts to salivary glands. <laughs> yeah. That's a brilliant quote. I take no credit for that, but Jack, yeah. That's... And I gave him credit. I gave yeah. him due credit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you were smart enough to put it in your book, and yeah. I hadn't seen it before that. Yeah. Oh, nice. why, don't you, why, don't you, why don't you elaborate on that? <laughs> yeah, well, he says, let's, let's find that quote. He says, just as salivary gland secretes saliva, the mind secretes thoughts. The thoughts think themselves. This thought production is not bad, it's simply what minds do. A cartoon I once saw depicts a car on a long western desert highway. A roadside sign warns your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. Which <laughs> <laughs> is very funny. It's, it's kind of gross when you see someone's anonymous thoughts on the sidewalk. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, who, was it? Oh, yeah, Jack, I think in another talk, he. He said, "What would it be like if, if, if you know, if we all had thought bubbles and you could actually read our thoughts, or if uh, the person meditating next to you, if their thoughts were being transmuted, transmitted into your head, you know? in a, in a way they might be. Yeah, right. <laughs> we might not know yeah. it. <laughs> but this idea that I mean, we tend to think that we're in control of our thoughts, but of course." You know, especially when you sit down and meditate, you just see like, oh my God, what is going on? It just, they're self-generating. And it's mostly worthless. It's just loops of repetitive worries and plans and I want this to be different and what's that about? And you know, They don't call it monkey mind for nothing. Exactly. It's an insult to monkeys. I was just, I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, he says it. He says it better than I can. But I think it's it's liberating to see that 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 it's just happening. It's just happening. You, you don't. It's nothing to be upset about. It's just what the mind does, and that's when you can kind of get a little distance and sort of let it go. Um, You're not the crazy one, right? Because everyone's like, that. yeah, it's the nature of the human mind. Yeah. Another phrase you quote in the book is temporary nirvana. Yeah. Which yeah. I like so much. Yeah. Yeah. Ajahn Buddhadasa. Use that term. Who is that? He's a Thai forest master in the Theravadan tradition. Um, yeah, Ajahn Chah is another teacher. So Jack Cornfield went to Thailand. He went to India as well. But his main teachers, I believe, in Thailand and Burma. So he comes out of that school, the Theravadan mindfulness school. And Ajahn Buddhadasa is part of that, Ajahn Chah. Oh, was one of Jack's main teachers. Um, but yeah, temporary nirvana as the sacred pause of, ta- of stopping the momentum of the mind, not reacting, you know, making that commitment to not just be swept up in our habitual reactions, but to allow for space before responding. Um, that... Buddhadasa described as a temporary nirvana because in that moment you're not grasping, you're not pushing away, you're not in a state of aversion or craving. There's just this open, empty space where there's lots of possibility. And that, you know, one way to describe that is a nirvana, temporary, but still it's a taste of what it would be like to be free, to be not be just run ragged by our habitual thoughts and reactive patterns. Good practice for the next lifetime. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you, you write that a more fundamental purpose of poetry is to open a secret passageway to the freedom and refreshment that lies just beyond that self-centeredness. That's an extension of, that's a, it's a more, a longer temporary yeah, nirvana. Right, right. Yeah. Same thing though. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really can take us you know, out of ourselves and and beyond the constrictions of ego and the small self. I mean, poems arise from that energy. So I think any great poem you read, and of course I can't verify this, no one can, but my assumption is that they come out of states of self-forgetfulness, of that true self speaking. And so when we encounter poems like that, it calls forth our own true self, our own not separate, our Buddha nature comes forth, it shines forth when we encounter those poems and, and that, that's a beautiful thing. How did you begin to experience that, mm. that secret passageway, that little mm. taste, yeah. you know, that shot of freedom? Yeah, yeah. How did, when did that, do you remember that? The early experiences of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first started writing poetry, when I first started reading poetry, when I was in high school and just after high school. So I grew up in a very um, unartistic family. My father worked in a factory. He had dropped out of high school. Very intelligent man, but just grew up in the Depression. Very poor. Um, Nobody in my family went to college. Nobody, my brother went for a while, but dropped out. Anyway... Um, Where'd you grow up? In Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah. And um, 
my parents were very pragmatic people. They were very practical, sort of down to earth. And um, I, I just had different impulses and I didn't, I didn't want to replicate the life that they were living. And when I discovered poetry, like I'm gonna have to sneeze. Um, when I discovered poetry, it felt like this portal into a different way of being in the world. And it was, it felt like a secret passage to, to me because at that time in the early 70s in Lincoln, Nebraska, from a working class family, and I was an athlete in high school, um, nobody was saying, oh, you should become a poet. Or, you know, let's, you know, that was, that was not considered a cool thing to be. But so when I discovered that, it, it was quite remarkable. I felt like it kind of saved me. I mean, I had a lot of trauma as a child and um, felt pretty lost. And when I found poetry, I felt like, ah, this is where I can be who I really am. Mm. And yeah, it was, it was joyful. It felt magical. Yeah. You remember the poets you were reading back then? Well, there was William Carlos Williams was big, you know, because... He, I got it, you know, he just, it, the simplicity and clarity and immediacy of the things he just noticed and wrote about. So he was really big for me. There was a poet named Ted Couser who... Heartland poet. Yeah. And his early work, I still think, is really strong. But, you know, he was writing about the world that I was in. And I, before I discovered poetry, I thought Nebraska was the most boring place on the planet. You know, it's just like, well, there's nothing. It's just... You know, it's not mountains, it's not ocean, it's not forest, it's not, it's just nothing. Al Wong said that Omaha is the most spiritual city in the world. Really? He said, what other city would be named Omaha? He <laughs> 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 said that on my show. I know it's corny, but I love oh, it. Oh, that's great. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I'm going to hang on to that. Yeah, it has that God syllable in it. Ah. Uh -huh. um, but so when I read Ted Kuzer, it, it it's like, oh, wait, there's... There's a richness here, a subtle beauty in the plains. Um, it's quiet, and you have to. It your your vision has to change to see it. It's not like you go to Colorado and you're overwhelmed by the beauty of the place. Nebraska is not like that. But once I started reading poems, it's like everything came alive, and suddenly a fence post became really fascinating or walking you know down an alley and looking at the stuff people you know set behind their houses they didn't want to throw it away but they didn't want to also really keep it right and i just became fascinated with these sort of ordinary things i'm reminded now for sure i'm reminded of a prompt where you take a lamp on your desk or some simple object making friends with ordinary objects yeah that's the first prompt yeah, so yeah. that's at the core yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Isa comes up again in the book, page 76, translated by my late friend, Sam Hamill. Mm. Maybe you could read that one, and, and we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. The distant mountains are reflected in the eye of the dragonfly. Yeah. Even the cat likes it. <laughs> you, you write that there's a decentering of the human point of view in that poem, like the, like the earlier poem. And that the poem allows us to pour ourselves entirely into the act of noticing. Mm. And when I think about that phrase, I think about 
Alfred North Whitehead and mm. his concept of prehension. Mm. Not just noticing that there's a picture on the wall, but noticing that there's a, you know, a beautiful green color with four trees on it, a cloudscape, and mm. something that you can go deep into. That not just noticing it, but really making it an extension of your being. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the relationship. It's the relational quality. And you mentioned Whitehead, and I've been reading um, uh, Ian McGilchrist, who's a contemporary philosopher, but he, he quotes Whitehead quite a lot. But he, he argues that the way we um, perceive works of art is more like the way we perceive other uh, being humans than, than it is like thing. Like, I'm not saying that very well. But the way we engage with a poem is much more like the way we engage with another person than it is the way we engage with a thing. And that shifts the, you know, what we notice, how we pay attention. Um, and the relational quality becomes quite different. It's not a dead object to be studied, but a living presence to be in relation with. And that relation will change. You know, you read this poem, you know, in two weeks from now or in, in, in the summer or, or whatever. You know, it, you'll have a different experience. I mean, it's a living embodiment of a moment of consciousness, a moment of seeing, in this case, that's really vivid and still alive in the poem. Yeah. Yeah. Something organic rather than the poetry of forensics. Right. Yeah. yeah. What did the, I'm reminded of Jack Spicer. Uh, a poet is a time mechanic, not an embalmer. Oh, that's nice. A time mechanic. Yeah. Not yes. Right. Not you're not just taking experiencing it an experience and, and embalming it and setting it, you know, forever in one condition. But yeah. yeah. Several times in the book you call out the quote rationalist, materialist, utilitarian worldview and say that it has clearly dominated Western culture with disastrous results. Yeah. That's really at the core of it all, isn't it? Yeah, I think we're seeing it. You know, we're seeing um, that way of being in the world and, and what it has done. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's disheartening. You know, there's so many examples of that. For one that comes to mind immediately, when I was at Cornell, um, there was a wonderful cafe called the Temple of Zeus in the basement of the English department. And there were these plaster casts of Greeks, Greek gods and goddesses. And it was just this weird cafe, like little tables with, you know, red and white checkered tablecloths. And, but you'd go in there and hang out and, and Ammons would be there and other poets would be there, physicists would be there. And it was just an incredible place to talk and um, engage. And they, they completely shut it down and replaced it with administrative offices. And it seems like a small thing, and it isn't a huge thing, but it, it so typifies the idea that, like, that's not, a, that's not an efficient use of that space. Yeah. Let's put some offices in there and take this thing which was unique and alive and creative and where people came together and exchanged ideas and just had, you know, kind of fellowship and friendship. And and remove that, take that out of the equation, and replace it with something that could go anywhere. Right. 
And, and, and then, of course, the way we've treated the earth is just, it's a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. And it's this efficiency and what, you know, control, how can we make the earth serve us rather than the other way around. And, yeah, it's, it's all coming undone because of that way, that way of engaging and that way of thinking about our relationship to the world. Yeah. Soullessness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, treating the earth as if it was this just inanimate dead matter. Commodity. Yeah. 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 There's a poem on page 104 you say has directly influenced how you live your life. Mm. If You Knew by Ellen Bass. Yeah. I'd love for you to read that. Sure, sure. She's a wonderful poet and a wonderful person as well. <clears throat> if You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon spoon have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? That's beautiful. Yeah, that's a powerful poem and a powerful teaching. And I think, yeah, for me, like all of us, I get impatient and... Um, irritable when people don't behave in ways that I think they should and um, that middle stanza when the man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport been there yeah. yeah when the car in front of me doesn't signal Andrew Schelling says that in Boston people are going faster than you are fucking maniacs and slower than you are fucking assholes <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's one or the other right exactly yeah, it's, one, it's one or the other from the state of ego and personality. Right, right. Actually, uh, Sharon Salzberg, I did an online retreat from her uh, a while back, and she tells a story about driving in Boston, the insane traffic, and complaining about it. And, you know, they're stuck in traffic, and her friend says, you know, you know, uh, we, we are the traffic. <laughs> exactly. I've heard that quote before. That, yeah. and, it's, and, and it's absolutely right. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, complaining about the traffic, you are the traffic. Yeah, right. It's not like you have a right to be there. Nobody else. Exactly right. <laughs> and McClure said driving the car is personality enshrined. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, what, what do you want to bring to the world? Do you want to bring gentleness? Do you want to bring patience? Do you want to be the person who slows down and lets somebody in? Or do you want to bring aggression and irritability and anger? And Lord knows we need more patience and forgive, forgiveness. But, you know, this, but this, like, I don't remember they're going to die. And that seems to me the key teaching in this poem is that everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. Everyone has 
grief and loss and pain and we are all going to die and therefore you know more kindness just more kindness you just don't know what condition the clerk that doesn't say thank you we don't know what happened to her an hour before or a day before or when she was two you know we just don't know but we can assume that there's suffering there and we can bring more kindness yeah so I, I find that poem very inspiring cut her some slack yeah yeah In the book, I read these poems. I mean, anytime I read a poem. Somebody sends me a poem, I read it and, and think about it. And I want something deeper than rhetoric. Yeah. And rhetoric seems to be the default mode for most mm. poetry that, I don't know, is linked on Twitter or, mm. or what we're exposed to. Um, and when I think about the extreme um, lesson here in mindfulness, this, mm. this opportunity to come to poetry and come to life from a deeper place. And then something like Russia and Vladimir Putin yeah. invading Ukraine on this very morning yeah. and wondering how to attempt to write a poem about that. Yeah. What, what advice would you have for someone moved by this, whose own government perhaps yeah. is complicit of yeah. similar offenses, yeah. if we look at the Iraq war or any number yeah, of, of coups in South yeah. America and Central yeah. America and, and Iran and yeah. you know, everywhere else. Yeah. How, do, how would one begin to sit down and write a poem about what's happening right now in Ukraine? Boy, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, it's so big and so intense and so much suffering and destruction happening. I find it overwhelming. I... I I couldn't do it. I couldn't really give advice on how to do that. I do think that any poem um, written out of a sense of, of inspiration and genuine kind of urgency and depth um, is an act of non-aggression, you know, and is, is on the side of peace and balance and non-harming. <laughs> Um, so even if we can't write about these huge upheavals in our world or do something as poets to directly affect that, I think just the act of writing a poem in, in the ways that I've tried to describe um, can bring more awareness, can bring more peace into the field of consciousness that we all share and which is at the root of, you know, what kind of world we're creating, a world that's aggressive and destructive or a world that is honoring and calm and peaceful. So, yeah, but I, I don't know how to write those, those kind of big poems. Do you, what, what would you say? What would you say? Well, I think you started it by a poem as act of non-aggression. Yeah. I think I would start with that. Yeah. Um, there was a C.A. Conrad poem on Twitter this morning that I saw that I retweeted so I knew I, I would have it handy. And, um, and how that was available this morning, I thought, was, mm. was genius. You mm. know, he's obviously thought a lot about yeah. this. And um, um, I'm going to have to screen grab that yeah, and, yeah. and have that. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, when we write a poem thinking 
you know, let's do horrible things to Vladimir Putin or Donald yeah. Trump or whatever yeah. dictator of the moment is there. It just keeps us in a space yeah. that perpetuates, it makes us a little Putin. Right. So how you need to get to a place deeper than that. Yeah. And I think that what you said, poem is an act of non-aggression. Yeah. I would start with that. Yeah. This poem is an act. In fact, I started writing one in my head. <laughs> <laughs> now, now where do I get a chance to write it? I can't be like Ginsburg driving 70 down I uh, north on I-5, uh, putting it into the microphone. And, uh, I, I don't think it works. It could work like that. Yeah. You could get a first draft like that. Yeah. But I would start with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then see where it goes. Yeah. And see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. And then always when I'm in the poem and it seems too rhetorical or abstract, I think, what thing? Yeah. What thing is there? You yeah. know, because things come into your sensorium for a reason. And yeah. and you know, you're swirling out yeah. yourself. Yeah. And if you're swirling out an act of compassion, yeah. then there's a good chance that something might happen. Um, to um, inform the poem and add some color and some, some tangible, some ground, yeah. some ground. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you may not be able to write a Vladimir Putin poem on the morning of an invasion, but you can sure write an uh, an epilogue. And on page one forty six, I think it'd be a good ending for you to read the last paragraph of that. Oh, sure. Because yeah. I think that really sums up very nicely. And for a guy who's just started writing prose, this is brilliant. I'm, mm. I'm in awe of that, if that's the case. So, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, so this is the very end of the book. Nothing could be more important or more urgent right now than to realize the truth of interdependence, the common destiny we share with all life. Bringing poetry more wholeheartedly into our spiritual practice is one of the most powerful ways of knowing and feeling that truth. So find the poems you love, read and reread them, enter them, live in them a while, and bow to the wisdom you find there. Fantastic. Thanks for all you do for poetry mm. for, for this community. I'm a real delight to have this experience. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Paul, really. I really loved our conversation. Thank you. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the northwest coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. O-R-G. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.